Welcome to the Reality Check Podcast. I'm Zachary Phillips. In today's episode, I'm joined by Shihan Cameron Quinn. Cameron has been training Kyokushin Karate for 47 years. This is a full contact style of hard martial arts. He's worked with Olympic athletes, elite sporting teams, and trained a variety of martial arts champions. He is a best-selling author and does training seminars and speaking engagements around the world. He also runs Quintessential Training, where he teaches his martial arts styles. We talk about a variety of topics, including mental toughness in training, the benefits of martial arts for mental health, maintaining a positive attitude, overcoming past trauma, as well as some specific martial arts-based questions, including should you focus on principles or techniques? Cameron is a genuinely lovely man, and I could have spent hours more talking to him. I hope that you get as much out of this podcast as I did. Enjoy. Okay, so I'm here with Cameron Quinn. We've just finished a training session down at John Donahue Jiu-Jitsu, and we've taken the opportunity to have a little bit of a chat about longevity and training, mental toughness, and that sort of thing. Um, you're somewhat of a uh, humble but bit of a legend in the martial arts whole field. Can you give us a little bit of a background into your lifestyle and what you've accomplished and where, where you've been to up to this point? Um, yeah, sure. I think... Uh, we were just discussing before, I think I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. It's a timing thing. Um, I started when I was a little lad and I just kept at it. And I think sometimes longevity is nothing more than putting one foot in front of the other and just, uh, you know, keep on keeping on. Mm. And so uh, I've been involved in Kyokushin Karate for uh, 47 years, I guess. 47 yeah, years. Nearly 50 years. Uh, and uh, and I've been training in jiu-jitsu with John Donahue, John, coach John, John Donahue, since about 94 when he was still living in America. I don't mm. even remember when he came back to Australia. I think it was probably around um, 98 or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. But anyway, um, my job took me to L.A. regularly. So I'd go and uh, stay with John and uh, train with him for a few days at a time. He introduced me to some fantastic coaches and uh, really got me hooked on the uh, grappling side of things. Mm. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, uh, martial arts serves a lot of different purposes for different people, but one of the most important things to take out of, out of it is uh, that consistency, that fighting spirit, that uh, courage to just keep on. You know, and that carries through life, really. You find sometimes we used to train so hard that uh, I think it would be surprising to people if they realised how hard we used to train. Um, you know, it was nothing for us on a on a tough night, fair enough, but we'd do a thousand burpees. Like legit a thousand? Yeah. Not like, oh, we did a thousand, but no, like no, actually a thousand. We'd do a thousand burpees. Wow. And... Uh, We'd do three, four thousand techniques. We did a kickathon once. I remember once, um, one of the girls in the in the group was raising funds for cancer, so we had a kickathon, yep. and, and we invited uh, all anyone could come. We had people from all different styles of karate and taekwondo and so on. Anyway, the kickathon started. It was outdoors, and by about I think three or four thousand kicks. 
everyone had stopped except for our guys. Is this like everyone's constantly kicking at once yeah. or is it like one after the other? No, no, everyone's kicking and someone's taking a count. One, two, three, yeah. and you're kicking. <laughs> and you kick and we do 200 front kicks and we do 200 roundhouse kicks and then 200 side kicks and then 200 knee and then like this. Yep. And we're up to around, I think, four or 5,000 kicks and everyone and who, who didn't train with us regularly had gone. And the whole idea was the one who was the last man standing would get a beautiful punching bag, which we bought as a prize. When we got to 7,000 kicks, not one person had stopped. So I've kicked my way over to my buddy Pete, who we still try, still train with today. We, we went to the same high school. We fought against each other in the Australian titles twice back in the 80s, and we still train together today. Pete Collis, his name is. But anyway, uh, I said to him, this isn't going to work. No one's going to stop. <laughs> so we made a new rule. If your kicks drop below waist height, you are out. No one's kicks drop below waist height. Some guys were still doing head kicks. So we made a new rule. We'll all stop at 10,000 kicks. So we stopped at 10,000 kicks. I don't know. It maybe took a few hours. And we ended up giving the prize to the one who raised the most money. But I just thought it was really interesting because for us, there was no way that anyone, we, we'd still be there today if we had to. Because we trained with the attitude that you don't have to give up. There's no reason to stop. The, the, the limitations we place upon ourselves are genuinely false. They're genuinely unreal. So um, I, I'm with you. However, I know that some people listening will be like, however, I can't kick you know, 10 times without stopping. How do you get yourself to the the limit of just being able to keep training? Right, well, let's take it away training. from the martial arts because yeah. kicking is specifically martial arts. We can talk about anything. Mm. You know, you can talk about running. You can talk about uh, riding a bike. Um, but let's just say you want to talk about something like meditation because yesterday I caught up with a good buddy of mine. We spent about two and a half hours talking, and she's very interested in the meditation side of things. So we just talked about that and. Ideally, if you meditate, you want to be looking at about an hour in the morning, an hour at night. Of course, some people do more. One of my buddies does much more than that. And a lot of people I know do a lot more than that. But the reality is we have to balance our spiritual life with our external life. Of course. So when you've got a family and when you've got duties, you can't spend all day meditating. So... You think, all right, well, let me just aim for an hour in the morning, an hour at night. But the problem with that is when you start off, an hour is an awful long time. Yeah. So it's overwhelming. People think, oh, I'm never going to get to an hour. So they stop. They don't even start. They, they stop they, before they even start. Yeah. yeah. So my approach to it is it doesn't matter what you're doing. Let your attitude be based on the length of a single breath. So the most moment, important mo- thing, A moment-by-moment focus. Yeah. Mm. You know, you, you, you don't want to project too far into the future and think, I'm going to sit here for an hour. Because you'll do it the first time if you've got a will, strong will. But the second time, you'll be resistant to it. You mm. won't want to sit down. So you just say to yourself, all right, well, the most important thing in meditation is an erect spine. Good posture, comfortable posture, so that you're not restless. You sit in a certain way that allows your body to be restful with an erect spine. And then once you do that, you get your gaze right, you close your eyes if you want, and then all you do is you just say, I'm just gonna sit here for the length of a single breath. You take that single breath, 
and you've achieved your goal for the day. You don't. You can go then, because then what will happen is you underwhelm yourself. So the next day or that night, you sit down and all you have to aim for is a single breath. And then the next day you do a single breath. And if your body feels like taking another breath, you take another breath. And then if it wants to take another breath, sure. And you set a little clock and, you know, well, let me sit for five minutes. But if you start to, to set extensive time frame goals, you can overwhelm yourself and you kind of balk from the task. But if you just think, all right, well, let me just measure things in terms of the length of a single breath. Well, anyone can sit there for a single breath. I mean, you, it's impossible to sit there for less than a single breath, you know. So just work on a single breath at a time. Well, you translate that into anything that you do. I used to run a lot of marathons. And I remember one of the last marathons I ran, I just didn't have time to prepare. And if you want to prepare for a good marathon, you spend hours on the road, you know, and mm. you taper and you do hundreds of kilometres of training. This particular marathon, I did two... 10k runs a couple of weeks before that's all I did but because I'd run so many marathons before I knew that I could run a marathon so all I did was I just ran the marathon and I'd run for 20 minutes and I'd stop and have a stretch run for 20 minutes stop and have a stretch and finish the marathon and obviously my body was a lot sore than it would have been had I prepared properly but the point was it just proved something to me that um, <clears throat> you can do anything you want if you just do it in small bites, you know. So let's take it back to the kicking. Mm. Yep, just for, mm. just for the point of this. Okay. Breath by breath. Mm. There, there is a physical limit that the body has, though. As in, like, like, you will get to a stage where your body just can't take you. I know something Coach, Coach John always says to us is that a lot of people give up mentally before they give up physically. And the training here... I know from personal experience has pushed my mental, like my body can take a lot more, you know, and I'm constantly training, getting fitter, getting fitter, but my brain will give up. He'll be like, no, go harder. And then I get that extra mental gear, right? But eventually I get to the stage where, well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe I haven't been pushed enough, but it feels like I get to the stage where my body's just like, it literally has nothing in me. I had a, a little kid the other night in training and uh, he's, a, you know, probably a little bit softer than average. But anyway, he had an experience in training. He's bawling his eyes out, going, oh, why is he nearly just one more ounce of pressure and she would have crushed my skull and, you know. Jiu-jitsu kid. Yeah, yep. just, and just you know, he's a karate kid, but we roll as well. Yeah. And I said, come on, get up. Oh, I can't get up. I said, just get up and sit up straight. I can't, I can't move. My head is just, I'm afraid if I sit up, I might go unconscious and die. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, you do 10 push-ups, I'll give you $10. And he goes, okay, boom. Yeah. <laughs> and it pumps out. So, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, it's a, a very common analogy that's used if you say to somebody... Like Gundy or a million dollars. There's a million dollars waiting for you yeah. at the Millennium Hotel on 47th Street in New York City, but you have to be there by Friday. You'll find a way. You'll find a way. Yeah. If, if the car, if the plane breaks down and, and diverts to Chicago, you'll get a car and you'll drive. You'll, fi you'll figure it if out. If the car breaks down, mm. you'll grab a bicycle. It doesn't matter. You'll do what you can mm. if the motivation is right. Yes. You know, and so in, in terms of that 
at the end of the day, I think most training is mental training. Yeah. Because when you know when when some people, I remember I interviewed a guy named Benny Urquidez for a magazine back in the eighties, and Benny said that fighting is ninety percent of the brain, and I wasn't really sure what he meant by that at that point. And to this day, I think it means different things to different people. But at the end of the day, I realise, first of all, that when you've done all the hard training in the dojo, you've, you've prepared properly and you've really pushed yourself outside your comfort zone, well, then when you get in the fight, you have more space in your head to focus on your strategy and focus on what's... Because you don't have to think about your physiology, I'm tired, oh, I'm going to run. You've this. fought all those battles in the past. That's all done. Yeah. So you can put that aside and it gives you more mm. room in your brain. The other thing too is that maximal or optimal development, optimal growth happens just a little bit outside your comfort zone. Yes. No one ever grows in their comfort zone. In fact, it's the opposite. If you spend all your time in your comfort zone, you're going backwards. I, I'm a massive advocate of that. I um, at the end of last year, I wanted to push myself, and I was lucky enough to. There was a charity event to do a 24-hour grapple-a-thon, so it was 12, 12 to 15 classes, and then in between free rolling over the stages of like a 20, like 24-hour period. I stayed. I attended every single thing. Was mm. on the mat the whole time, mm. just literally just 24 hours of rolling, mm. and that was well beyond the comfort zone. Mm. I learned a lot about both myself mm. and about jujitsu afterwards, mm. but. It was that, yeah, pushing beyond that comfort zone and the mental side of things. You're right, that, that it was like my physical body was gone by the mm. end of it. My, my ability to actually do the martial art was quite reduced, as you would imagine, after mm. that time. But I learned to compensate. I learned to keep going. I learned to keep mm. pushing. I learned to keep fighting for it. And it was, um, it was one of the most rewarding experiences because it sort of when, when I go back to my normal training now, I'm able to go, well, I've been pushed for, Way beyond. I've been anything, pushed yeah. for you know, twenty three and a half more hours than sure. you've pushed me. Sure. <laughs> so the the physical side of things, I'm well, you know, I'm well beyond that. Let's, I can sure. take that breath. I can detach a bit back from it and watch what's happening in the moment. Well, yeah, that's exactly what happens. And when you experience those levels of of intensive training, anything after that becomes so much easier. Yeah. But even when you're experiencing those things, there is a for the body to give up, there has to be a mental decision. There has to be a the 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 body may give up, but if the if the mind is still strong, it'll still get something out of it. Mm. It may not be able to do the sweep that you wanted to do, or it may not be able to do the kick with the same impact you wanted to do. But you'll get something and you'll still have that indefatigable willpower to just keep going, you know. Having said comfort zone, the, the flip side is if it's too far out your comfort zone, it can cause injury. And you get overwhelmed. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm, so it's, it's yeah. just outside your comfort zone. It's not optimal development doesn't come way outside your comfort zone. Optimal development comes just outside your comfort zone. So you're pushing yourself and extending yourself, but not overreaching yourself. Mm. So you want to find your limit, or you want to have a coach, I suppose, ideally, that you can find your limit and push you just past that limit on that regular and constantly giving you that little bit more, little bit yeah. more, little bit more, and that's how you get the growth. Well, that's how you develop the willpower to realise that 
you're actually capable of more than you thought mm. because your comfort zone is what you think you're capable of. Then you get pushed outside your comfort zone and actually your comfort zone exam- expands. Yes. And, and in that way, mentally you start to realise that I am way stronger mentally than I've been led to believe, than people tell me I am, that maybe I grew up. See, a lot of people with, with issues, issues of, of, um, of trauma and stress and so on, have been led to believe that they're lesser than what they really are. I can attest to that. Well, I don't, yeah. And what happens is in a lot of these traumatic situations, uh, people are taken too far outside their comfort zone, so they break down. Oh, so like the, the traumatic situation pushes them so far beyond the comfort zone that they can't handle it, and it's that, just that's it's like right out there, they're still here. Well. Yeah, and that may be just no more than than an abusive carer. Yeah, saying to you, "Why do you bother? You're useless. You know, you got. You, don't worry about it. You don't waste your. T- you, you're not going to get anywhere. You're born on the wrong side of the railway tracks. You got no hope. You're useless. You got two left feet." And if you hear that often enough, at a certain point in your life, you'll start to believe it. Mm. Then you take uh, the flip side when you talk about people who have experienced abusive, traumatic childhoods. And quite often, their life becomes a form of self-defense. So everything they do is a way to survive the violence of the situation. And that may mean compliance. Mm. So later on, what happens is they start to hate themselves because they think about it and they flip it and they go, well, it only happened because I was compliant. They don't recognise that that compliance was actually a form of survival and it had nothing to do with them because they can't control what was happening outside them. Mm. So their way of defending it was they would become compliant. They would allow it to happen. Mm. And later on, that can cause them to blame themselves and therefore not allow themselves to grow out of that traumatic mindset again. So it's a very similar situation. Do you think that people sort of, they, they, they get into a comfortable rut maybe? Like what, what I see with, what I see with, like I'm a high school teacher by trade. And I see students, some students pushing and trying to excel, but I see the vast majority sort of coasting. I'm not coasting's not the right word, but just, they're sort of like they've got their rhythm, and they're not like they're, they're in their comfort zone, and they're developing, but they're developing at the expected pace. And you get one or two or three, you know, in in a year level, that's like no, no, no. That's like they they see they see they almost see the game for what it is, and they're like, well, that's just what people are doing. But I'm like operating up here, and they're taking off. But I see the vast majority of people operating at this sort of regular pace level, not wanting to push themselves, not striving, not taking that opportunity. And, mm. you know, everyone's got their own different story. Mm. But it feels like a lot of people stay in that, stay in the comfort zone because <laughs> it's comfortable, I suppose. Well, it's also the strongest strongest instinct in man is self-preservation. So it's a form of self-preservation to stay in the comfort zone. It's easier to, to keep going and just sort of more of the same, more of the same? Well, in the past, and I wasn't around tens of thousands of years ago, but you walk outside of that cave and you're confronted with saber-toothed tigers and all kinds of things. Danger. Danger. So, Mm. and 
the scarcity of food and so on. So what yeah. you would do is you would get the food when you could and you'd sit back in your cave and you eat as much as you can because you don't know when the next meal's going to come. And walking outside the cave is a threat. So somewhere in our genes, perhaps, there's this self-preservation thing which says, stay at home, put your feet up, watch TV, get fat because you never know when you're going to run out of food. You know? don't, don't, don't shake the box too much. Exactly. You can keep your, keep your you life know. going the way it is. And we know when we apply logic and reason and intelligence and all that, that it's a foolish way to live because it actually has the opposite effect. Yes. But there is a part of our brain which says, just pull back and stay in your comfort zone. Because, you, yeah, I've got to admit, I've been like that a lot, a big chunk of my life. Mm. I'm not sure what the exact flipping point was, but I realised that I, I, was, I was working full-time and I was struggling to maintain that full-time one place. You know, I just, for whatever reason, I couldn't handle the stress of the situation. Um, and it was, you know, self-induced stress and all that sort of stuff. I could probably handle it a lot better now. But I realised I was in a in a rut. I could manage it. It was stressful and it wasn't the best situation. But I was earning a you know, decent wage. I could afford to start paying down a house that I bought. I could get a you know better stuff, but I just wasn't that happy. And I wasn't I could see that, you know, in if I didn't do anything in five, ten, twenty years, my life would be the same. Mm. And then I step back and I'm like, well what's the point? You know, what's the point of just keeping this comfortable rut and staying getting getting fatter on the couch? Mm. I decided to flip it, quit the full-time job, took up some opportunities, started working part-time, income reduced, but the the opportunities and the different things that came about because of that choice have led to a lot more, a lot more basically just contentment and happiness in my life, but it came at the cost of the risk of comfortable. Well, and there you go. I mean, that's a perfect example of how the reality is optimal growth happens outside your comfort zone. Mm. So what you did is you... You quit your comfort zone. It it was and and the growth mm. happens. You know, I I think society too. You know, I mean, political correctness and and the way society is going now is actually creating this environment of of. Uh, it's too safe. Well, yeah. I mean, yep. it's non-competitive. I mean, it's got to the point where they even play games where they don't score because they feel as though it's politically incorrect to score a game. I was going to bring that up. Um, one of I've got a one-and-a-half-year-old, and one of the main th- criteria for looking for a school, because we're already starting to think about where to send him, is I've said to my wife, I want them, I want it to be a, like a, there to be competitive and he to, he'd be able to lose. As in, like, I don't want him to lose. I want him to, you know, do his best and win and succeed. But I want him to be able to compete and to lose that competition and then to be able to, you know, be built back up from that loss. Exactly. Because if you can't, like, that's life. You know, if you if you leave the, the comfort of your parents, you know, bosom and then life just smacks you in the face and you lose out there and when you're an adult and you've never lost before. You know, there's, um, they talk about winners and loners, losers, but the reality is there are, the right attitude is winners and learners. But if mm. you don't have a competitive approach to anything, you can't win and you can't learn. It's that simple. Why would you need to learn anything if you still get rewarded for coming last? 
it's it's silly. You know, there are the bald eagle is an amazing bird, and often what they'll do is well, not often. What they do is when they feel as though the new the new chick is ready to fly, what they'll do is they'll it'll get on the bird's back and they'll fly out and then oh, they'll no. just drop it. Wow. Yep. And this bird goes tumbling down, but he sure learns quick enough. And that's how they learn to fly. Far out, yeah. And they find their wings and all of a sudden it's like, I have to fly whether I like it or not. Yeah. And there's, yeah, that's sort of, it's, it's so important to teach kids that you have to strive to win. Not because you want to humiliate someone, but because you want to stretch yourself and see how amazing you really are how incredible you can be when you really, really push yourself beyond what you think you're capable of. Mm. And you look at some of the most beautiful uh, ex- examples of human qualities are in the athletic realm. You look at some of the uh, performances at the Olympics. One that comes to mind, which I was there for, was the final of the 10,000 metres in the 2000 Olympics, where my hero runner is an Ethiopian named Hale Gabra Selassie. He was the current champion. His main rival was a Kenyan named John Turgat, and Turgat was the world cross-country champion and won all kinds of things, but he was the bridesmaid when it came to Hale Gabra Selassie. Turgat's about six foot Odd and Harley Gabriel is about five foot six. So when they'd run next to each other, it was amazing. Anyway, this is a ten-kilometer race, and the Kenyans would surge to try and set up Gabriel Celeste, and he'd just surge but pull back, and he never got forced to the front of the race. And then, with about three hundred and fifty meters to go, they're coming around the bend for the last lap. And Gabra Celesi has kind of moved out and he's looked over his shoulder to see who was there. And his own team member is here coming around. But because of the position of his team member, he kind of, he hid Turgat. Mm. And when he looked, when he looked back, Turgat had gone. Ah. So he took off. And Gabra Selassie ran him down and ran and ran and ran. Turgat chased, uh, took, was running so fast and Gabra Selassie taught him, caught him with about six or seven metres to go and, meet him, and beat him like by maybe 12 inches to win the gold medal. And the last lap that they ran in the 10-kilometre race was faster than the gold medal lap of the 1,500 metres in the same Olympics and it was just the most amazing example of, of willpower of not yeah. giving up it was just beautiful and then there's a, a, a lady Tammy Van Wees is a, a, a friend I got to know her um, she's a marathon swimmer and she said something really beautiful to me once you know she's the only person to actually swim non-stop from Victoria to Tasmania. Oh, far out. And the lifesaver who went in the rubber dinghy 
to, uh, to make sure she was safe, broke the world record for the length of a rubber dinghy. <laughs> And, she, and he's next to a swimmer. Oh, that's amazing. It is. And the water temperature at one stage there was seven degrees. Now, people don't know how cold that is in water, but ice baths are usually nine degrees. Oh, wow. Okay. So she's swimming in water that's colder than the average ice bath, which professional athletes go and sit in for five minutes and then get out because it's too cold. Yes. And, and she said that by the end of the swim, the only sensation she had in her entire body was about an inch around her heart. Oh, my God. Everything else was completely numb. Mm. And I said to her, how did you keep going? Mm. And she said, I projected forward to the next day, sitting on the sofa with my daughter, with my little daughter with her arm around me going, it's okay, mummy, you can do it again. (laughs) And she said, there was no way that I wanted to do it again. So she said, I would just project forward and see that and then just put one more arm in front of the next. One arm in front of the next. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned before, you either win or you learn. And that's that's something that rings true for me with jiu-jitsu. You know, every time I'm on the mat, I I get some subs or I tap and I find that I tap more than I sub and I try and learn from that. And I think that's, you know... That's, in my opinion, yeah, the way to look at jiu-jitsu, but martial arts in general. So you either you're either finding that, you know, you're getting that win, or you, or you're subbing. So from that perspective, I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you deal with winning and losing? Well, I think the first thing that's really important, and this goes for jiu-jitsu goes for anything goes for life as well is if you want to take yourself to another level you have to do it with agreement so for example when we prepare fighters for kyokushin tournaments these guys are fighting at a level which really would shock the average person so just to give some context kirkishian tournaments it's full contact striking kicks to the head no punches to the head well they leave the punches out because there's no gloves no gloves yeah so skin on face would it just be a blood Blood bath bath, yeah but they allow full contact kicks to the head because it's not the same effect and also they're much easier to see yes I've, i've i've watched some um some um highlight footage and it's just it looks like to the untrained eye people just punching each other in the in the chest hard as they can and then can you kick to the legs kick to the legs kick to the legs all the way you up. kick anywhere except the groin if you've if you've ever been kicked in the legs it's um i used to do muay thai and um the first time you get kicked in the thigh it's a it's a holy experience yeah, it, is. <laughs> it is so you're training you're training people for well you train people i mean you, you know there are there are different qualities somatics Somatics just means physical qualities. You've got speed, strength, cardiovascular endurance, flexibility. And in karate, we add another one. And that one I call um, uh, impact resistance. Because you can imagine the average person who isn't used to impact going and playing an NRL game. Just and getting flattened. Well, the first tackle, they'd be in hospital. Literally, they'd be in hospital. It wouldn't be like they get winded and go off. The impact would put them in hospital. Mm. 
And it's the same with a Kyokushin tournament. You get a novice goes into a Kyokushin tournament and they can really get hurt. Yeah. So you have to prepare the body mm. for that. And if you have someone who's in the dojo whose objective is to get fit and lose a bit of weight and get flexible and they are, turn- they are partnered up with someone whose objective is to win the world full contact knockout karate championship... You can it can be a problem. Yes. <laughs> so, it has to be what we call agreement. So, yes. Even when you roll, you can roll absolutely to the death. Yes. If you have agreement. Yes. And this is the same in life, in that most traumatic experiences have occurred without agreement. Someone doesn't understand the relationship. Yes, I see what you're saying. And the problem with coming back to normalizing the brain after a traumatic experience and this can be PTSD from return military from first responders from police from ambulance it can be people who have been psychologically physically or sexually abused what happens is certain parts of the brain switch off and research has shown that after they have that experience the brain, the parts of the brain which would normally function during a recollection of that experience aren't functioning. Hmm. But the parts of the brain that do function when they recollect the experience are actually the parts of the brain that function during the experience. So for them, it's not a recollection. They're it's actually reliving the experience. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So one of the things that needs to happen for people to normalise their life is to return the brain function to norm to mm. a normal functioning brain. And to do that, you have to increase the levels of interaction with agreement. So, for example, if someone has been traumatised by, let's say, their bearded father, a, a white bald bearded father every time they see a white bald bearded man they immediately revert to that traumatic experience and they can have a flashback and they can have a meltdown and they can do crazy things so the first thing that has to happen is that they have to learn that right now where they are is a safe environment so to do that they have to have interaction with agreement to start to very slowly re innovate the parts of the brain that have gone to sleep. Should slowly interact with the problem stimulus yes. in a safe place, like that successive approximation to, yeah. the, to the traumatic... Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, sometimes it doesn't even get to that. So All it takes is being able to sit down and talk to someone normally. Mm. They can't even do that mm. because sitting down and talking sets off triggers. Yeah. And so quite often one of the therapeutic... Um, modalities for treating these people is well tell me about your experience well they can't mm. they can't tell them about it without having a flashback and actually experiencing it so I, I want to ask because you've clearly got a strong knowledge basis from this in in this sort of idea of um, helping people through trauma and that mm. sort of stuff and I imagine given the years of teaching and training people you will have seen people from all walks of life so it will be direct experience walking people through this process and getting them back on their feet and that sort of stuff through martial arts, through training, through coaching, that sort of stuff. 
Can you elaborate a little bit on on that on that knowledge basis that you're drawing from here? Yeah, sure. Well, it's um, I've taken a great interest in it. Yeah. Mainly through certain experiences I've had in my life. Um, I've been very blessed not to have had pretty well any traumatic experience during my childhood. I grew up in a very solid, loving family. And that, that, by the way, is probably the number one thing. The primary carer, the person who, whose role in life is to care for you, is so important. That prime, like, attachment giver. Yes. Yeah. They've even shown, when they look at uh, um, mice or rats, and they look at rats, rhesus monkeys and chimps and so on, because of their genetic proximity to humans. Um, certain rats will get pampered in the first few hours of their life. They're like pampered, literally just overwhelmed with, with grooming and licking and caring. By, and, and by the mother rat. By the mother rat. Yep. Other rats, for some reason or other, won't have that, but they'll still have the same... Uh, the same food and physical... Everything else. Yes. The ones that were pampered for the first few hours will interact and assimilate into the, into the norm of their community hmm. really, really well. Just from that first, like the only point the of difference. First is the first few hours. hours. Yeah. Whereas the rat who didn't get that same level of attention will function normally and mm. grow physically the same way, but has trouble interacting and communicating with other rats in the hierarchy of the system. Mm. Because they weren't modelled as a... Attachment well, thing because their com- their connection to their primary caregiver was interrupted some mm. way. Now a lot of the times with with traumatized children, it's pretty well. I don't know. I haven't done the research, but probably you find ninety percent of the time, it's got a lot to do with some interruption in their connection to their primary giver. One I remember reading one paper where they did research on children who grew up in violent black neighborhoods in America. And these kids would witness the violent crime, see the drive-by shootings, be surrounded by the violence and the drugs and everything. But they had their hearth and they had their primary caregiver and their connection to their caregiver was rock solid. Mm. And they could go home and they were nurtured and loved and they weren't traumatised by it. So so like a, a, a non-ideal environment but with a primary caregiver, like a good primary caregiver yes. environment leads the kid to being like a... Traumatic, uh, um, emotionally stable. Yes. Whereas they can be right next to a kid experiencing everything 100% the same, but when that kid goes home, their parents are high on ice, so they disconnect, so there's dissociation. Those kids are the ones that grow up traumatised. Yeah, no, I understand. Even even if they might not face physical or sexual or anything like that, it's the the connection there. Yes. So... What I'm really interested in is how martial arts can be used as a modality for helping people with trauma. Mm. What have have you discovered with that? I've got some ideas, but (laughs) I'm definitely... Well, I I must say that I've looked at it from my own Kokushin primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kokushin has a couple of things which are really uh, unique to it. And one of them is the volume... Of basic techniques that we do we'll stand there and it's nothing to do 3,000 techniques 
Okay, so like, like, so you just do, you just for the the point of the listener, you're doing like hand movements, like punching, blocking. Yeah. We've got thirty basic techniques, and that includes a certain number of punches, a certain number of blocks, a certain number of kicks. So the point, the 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 martial perspective point of that would be to just muscle memory yes. and get like you doing this technique yep. perfectly every time, just constant movement, constant That's movement, it. constant movement. And also the uh, the effect on the cardiovascular. You get really fit doing it. Of course. And you might start off doing those 30 techniques. You might just do 10 techniques 10 times each. Yes. Well, that's 100. But in a really solid class, for example, when I was training in Japan under Masayama, it would be nothing to do 100 each of the 30 techniques. So 3,000. 3,000. Yep. And then that would be followed by more repetition. So... And then the other thing is each time you do that technique, you kia, you, you do that primal yell. Mm. And I became really fascinated in the primal yell in 1974 when I was in high school because I was actually quite small for my age. And I was doing a, some research on, I wanted to write a, an essay for my sports, my human movements subject that I was doing. And I was doing some research into the effects of primal screaming, yelling, and and loud screaming and yelling, on the effects it had on the stimulation of bone tip growth in developing youth. Yes. And I thought, man, this is for me, because I just wanted to get bigger. You can get bigger, yeah. So I was tr- literally training seven days a week. I would I got a bit of a reputation because I would hitchhike from one end of the Gold Coast to the other, and people would pick me up. And seven days a week, my parents got sick of it but literally seven days a week for two to three hours a day because I was so young and I had all this energy to burn, I was able to do it. And all I really wanted, and I was ki and yelling, and when they'd ask me to ki I would be the loudest ki in the class. And I actually grew 22 centimetres in one year. You attribute that to the, to the yelling? Who knows? I mean, I think it had an impact. See, my take on on yelling and fighting in general, right? I feel like our society stifles that primality, yeah? When, other than in, you know, a martial arts gym, is it viable and socially accepted and a comfortable place for a male, and I say male because, you know, males are typically, hierarchically, the, you know, the the warrior, (laughs) warriors of the society, but either gender, when is it, when is it acceptable and when can you fight someone when can you yell loudly do you know what i mean we 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 go through we go through our lives and just we're very restricted and held back and subdued you come onto the mat you get to yell you get to scream you get to fight someone you get to do the things that you're you can't do well i i think there's three places that i see yelling is acceptable acceptable in society one is in the martial arts school where you're encouraged to yell. Yep. And you're encouraged to yell in a certain way. The ki has a certain physical technique to it, which really is very good for the core muscles. You're, you're, you're touching your belly, so like drawing from... You draw from the depths of your core, your gut, and you, you explode this uh, yell mm. in a very short, explosive... Uh, impactive way Um, that's the first way the other way we get to yell 
is at rock concerts. Yeah, I was going to say, rock concerts, yeah, for we sure. We can just yell like nuts. But it's a different sort of yell because you're, you're whistling, you're going, yeah, you know. It's not the same. Mm. And the other way is at sporting events mm. when your team does well. And that's cheer, cheering. And, right. you, you know. And they have, I believe they have a therapeutic mm. thing as well. It's one of the reasons why people feel so good when they come out of a game. You know, yeah, oh, it's, like, it's like concert. Yeah, that tribal thing connecting, Yes. primal yelling. Yeah. Mm. So the primal scream thing, and I haven't done enough research lately on primal scream, but in the 70s that primal scream was a legitimate form of therapy. The other place that I yell is sometimes when I'm driving down the road and I just want to yell because I'm getting sleepy or something. So I'll yell and do key eyes. Another place I love to yell is when... I mean, nature and no one's around. You just want to yell mm. because it's just so good. So that's one form of therapeutic beneficial training is that yelling. Yes. Another form is the bilateral motion. When you do hundreds of techniques where you do the same technique left and right, where you move your stances the same way left and right, mm. where you'll do a certain block and a combination, you go block, bang, bang, bang. You do six or seven techniques, one side, then switch to the other side. That has an effect on the left and right hemisphere of the brain. Yes. And there was a stage where everyone talked about left hemisphere, right hemisphere, right hemisphere is the creative, left hemisphere is the logic, all this sort of thing. And then it was poo hard, but now they're realising once they've been able to attach electrodes to certain parts of the brain and watch the results of people under traumatic experience, they realise that actually there is certain parts of the left hemisphere and certain parts of the right hemisphere that do react in certain ways. And when someone's traumatised, that right hemisphere part or that left hemisphere part can completely shut down. So you're saying using the body the same way on both sides helps the brain reconnect? Yes. Yeah. And that's really important mm. to reconnect the left and right hemisphere in a way that normalises it. Because if it's okay. affected by trauma, it's affected by trauma. So you're, you're, you're saying the act of moving the body is a way to rewire the brain, like that's sort of creating the plasticity. Yes. Yeah, okay. And moving the body bilaterally mm. is really, really So not, not just moving the body, but specifically doing, I'm doing an exercise on this side, I'm doing an exercise on the other side. Sure. And, and doing it in a way that forces the brain to think. So you can run, you can swim, you can walk. They're all bilateral motions. Yes. But you could you could almost go to sleep doing it. You're, learning, so you're learning a new skill at the same time and that's, that's like right. challenging. So, so it's not just engaging the, the, the motor cortex of the brain, you're engaging the, you know, the grey matter, the other parts of the, of the brain and getting it all involved. Yes, yeah. you have to, you can't just move, you have to use your brain to do the moves correctly. Yeah, I understand. So that bilateral motion is incredibly valuable. Another area I think martial arts really serves a lot is putting someone in what I would call a violent situation. Yes. But in a safe, trustworthy, violent situation. Agreement. You have agreement. Yes. So that is really important because people who have been traumatised lose the ability to connect with other people in a safe environment. They think... Even in a safe environment, a certain thing will happen and that'll trigger them to react as if the violence is happening again. Mm. 
So they have to relearn. And one of the ways to do that is in this safe environment, which nevertheless is replicating certain levels of violence. Yes. And then by having faith in what's going on, learning to even touch someone and be touched by someone. Mm. And that's one of the benefits which is more attuned to grappling, BJJ, than it is to karate. Karate is not... It's very, it's very physical, very close. And, and yeah. your techniques require you to be up close and intimate and it's, touching. It's, it's the closest form of, yes. of fighting. You're right up yeah. close. It's, it's, it's aggressive hugging. Well, I, I use the term when I teach the kids in certain shapes that they have to take, I say you have to be close enough to kiss or bite. <laughs> yes. That's how close you have to be. Yes. And you tell them that and they have a giggle... Yeah, but you're still, yeah, yeah, yeah. still letting them... That's right. still giving them the knowledge. Yes. And so I think that's a really key part of it as well, is beyond the movement, beyond the benefits of movement, beyond the benefits of a good cardiovascular mm. workout, beyond the benefits of bilateral motion that forces your brain to re-engage, and beyond the benefits of the primal screaming and the yelling and the key eyes, the having to... Find, or finding yourself in an environment where you're working with someone in a very close, intimate way will help you to redevelop pathways of trust, yes. which, are, which are gone. Hmm. See, I, I see that a lot of people want to learn martial arts for self-defense following a traumatic experience um, that might have recently happened or happened in the past. And, you know, that was partly one of the reasons why I trained initially, but the self-defense benefits and like the actual fighting benefits, unless you're going to compete, right? That's a separate story, but I've never had to use my skills that I've learned. I've been training now for maybe probably like 12, 13 years. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure. A bunch of different martial arts, but in terms of the actual skills that I've learned, I've never had to use them in, in an actual physical violent confrontation with someone outside of the gym all of the fights that happened in the gym with my friends, right? So from, from a self-defense perspective, the skill set hasn't, quote, hasn't been useful, but it really has because it's taught me that confidence, that connection, that community, the, 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 the physicality, the, the mental state change, you know, the, the, the self-defense aspect or that, that confidence that I felt, felt initially like I can handle myself or I can better handle myself. That was like the, the, the sort of the calling card, but there's so much benefits beyond that. Well, let me suggest an idea that uh, there's a difference between self-defence and self-protection. Self-defence, and this a buddy of mine, Nick Hughes, has written a fantastic book called How to Be Your Own Bodyguard, and you can get it on uh, on Amazon. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll write that down so people can... Yeah, How yeah. to Be Your Own Bodyguard by Nick Hughes. Fantastic book, and I think it should be compulsory reading for everyone who uh, goes to high school. Covers everything you could ever think of. And he also has an app, yeah, which is great. But anyway, whether it's original to Nick, I'm not sure, but Nick talks about the difference between self-protection, self-defence... Self-defense is the hard skills that you use in a physical confrontation. Which one was? Self-defense. Yes. Yeah. Self-protection is everything else. 
Yes, okay. So you use your, you walk into a room and you have a habit of sweeping and checking and keeping on things, the way you sit, the way you drive defensively, uh, everything else you do to prevent you ever having to get to the point to use your hard skills is self-protection. And Mm. I would suggest that a lot of people who do martial arts, even though they never actually use their hard skills, the, like you said, the fact that they train gives them a certain gait, a certain confidence, a yes. certain attitude, yes. a certain posture. Yes. I remember uh, reading somewhere where they talked, it might have even been in Nick's book. I'm just rereading it again now. They went to prison and they asked um, a number of very hardcore violent prisoners, murderers, rapists, so on, to look at a film of people walking down the street and crossing a road. Oh, I think I've heard this, yeah. And point out which ones they would target. Which ones would you target and why? And the same six or seven people were targeted by every single one of these people. Yeah. And it was almost imperceptible sometimes, you know, Hmm. but it it came down to a certain gait, a certain posture, a certain... Uh, way they moved, a certain nervousness in their eyes, a certain lack of confidence. Yes. Well, all those things go with good martial arts. Yes. I must say that certain martial arts give you better posture than others. Karate will give you very good posture. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Karate gives you great posture. Kendo gives you beautiful posture. Kendo's the... Um, Japanese sword. Japanese sword, yeah. Judo, BJJ, all these sort of things give you bad posture. Yeah, we're we're hunched we're hunched over yeah. like that sort of gorilla sort That's of. That's right. Yeah, and also your injuries will shape you that yes, way. Yes, it's very it's very a bendy. Yeah, yeah. but you, if you tell yourself that I need to reshape my posture, it's not hard to overcome. So, in terms of uh, avoiding confrontation, probably one of the best things people can do is martial arts because it gives them the confidence to carry themselves in a different way. And therefore, take them out of that that um, demographic mm. where people would target. You know. See, I, I had a I have a friend who who suffers chronic injury, you know, issues with the body and just a lot, just quite physically weak. Um, Tell him to stop playing rugby league. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of injuries to the fact that you know training any sort of martial art is basically out of the question. Mm. So I was trying to trying to help her with instill the mindset and what I said to her was basically that exact same study project confidence even if even if you don't feel it just just look that confidence and she was she was on a bus going between a couple of you know dodgy areas and some people came on and started harassing her and she just sort of shaped up Mm. looked looked at the person and just had that projected that confidence inside she's freaking Mm. out a bit but to them, you know, she, she was obviously able to put that on a little bit and just project that confidence to them. They backed off. Mm. And that was enough. Like, she came back, she's like, oh, my God, it worked. Mm. You know, like, you know, just just not, like, aggressively, like, talking smack to them, just sitting up, posture back, I got this. Yeah, I got know? this. I'm not going to take any crap from you. Yeah. And like, if you really want to push it, I think it's going to be a much harder journey than you're expecting. That's that's exactly yeah. it. And, like, like, luckily nothing happened because, you know, She's physically not able to, but the the lessons of just sitting upright and mm. projecting confidence really did help. Mm. It's so important. And, wanna... and you, you don't want to get to the point where you use anything 
for self-defense. You want to use everything for self-protection. I, I'm, I'm fully, I fully agree with that. Whenever I've um, trained or talked to anyone about any form of martial arts or self-defense, I'm like, if you're getting to a fight, if you're if you're punching on with someone, there's there's five steps, ten steps prior that have. You've got to ask yourself, where which, which porn move did I make wrong that has got me checkmate right now? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I I um I, saw, I talk to people like if if you've got a if you're a guy, what's the most dangerous place for you to be? And it's around other guys that are drinking. So like for for physical violent confrontations like after that's midnight. To, after, okay, yeah, after yeah. <laughs> so so like. If, if you want to, like, you know, obviously I'm not saying not to go out and not to drink and not to have that thing, but be aware that that's the time, you know, time, place, environment, activity that heightens your risk. So if you're doing a, a if you're, you know, aware enough to put yourself in that situation, you choose to put yourself in that situation, just be aware that there is a heightened risk in that situation, you know, and take those steps to prevent. Mm-hmm. And if something does happen, you know, if someone says something, you don't need to hark up, mm. just... Project that confidence. Mm. If he insults you, swallow your ego. It's okay. Mm. It's just words. Mm. <laughs> it's not worth the risk. Mm. I um. I'll be talking to students at high school, and they'll be like, "Oh, you do martial arts, yeah, blah blah blah." Have you ever been in a fight? And my my response is, "No, I'll run away." Like, what do you mean, sir? What do you mean? You know, because they look at me and mm. see me and that sort of stuff, and I'm like, "I don't know if they've got a weapon. I don't know if they've got friends. I don't know if they're trained." I don't, I, you know, there's a lot of unknowns. I will, I will use my, you know, if I have to fight, I'll use it to defend myself if I have to, if I'm pushed. But until then, I'm off. And that's yeah. that's part of that self-protection thing in my exactly. mind. And you can also say, they, have you been in a fight? Yeah, hundreds, hundreds. <laughs> what, what happened? Well, nothing. What do you mean? Well, the fight ends before it starts because the way you project yourself, the way you carry yourself, your posture, your mindset, your attitude... Stops the fight before anything. See, bullies don't pick on someone because they think they're going to get beat up. They pick on someone because, first of all, they have they lack self-esteem. So they want to do something to... The bully does. Yes. Yep. They want to do something to prove to themselves that they have some, some worthy quality. And take it from someone else. Yeah. So they pick on people that they think are uh, easy to beat. And they'll project a certain... Um, aggressive stimulus mm. to see how that person They're waiting responds. for the bite in some capacity. Yeah. And depending on how that person responds, they'll project another aggressive stimulus until they over, they, the confrontation happens, they overwhelm. They, they want the confrontation to happen and they'll yeah. push for it. Yeah. But when someone is confident, has self-confidence and, and has trained, they put out that, the bully puts out the aggressive stimulus and they don't get the fear response that they're expecting. Mm. They either get a more aggressive stimulus or they get a very neutral, fearless yes. stimulus. Yes, I, I, I and the whole this. thing breaks down mm. and they're back off again. So this is why most fights will end before they even start because the bullies will go somewhere else. And a lot of the time you won't even recognise it. That's you it. won't even recognise from yeah. the from the um, confident side of things. You might not even know that there was even an, ever an option. Yeah, yeah. And and this is one of the problems with modern society and and political correctness. You're a school teacher, so I'm sure you've experienced it, where um, no no zero tolerance for bullying in schools. When I was a kid, I went to boarding school. If I didn't like someone or if they didn't like me and it got to the point we couldn't sort it out, 
the sportsmaster would put 16-ounce gloves on us. Really? And there'd be a group of guys going, oh. fight, 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 and we'd be down the gym, and they're big gloves and little mm. boys, and you'd punch on, and you might be scared, but you'd punch on, and when one of the guys backed off to the point where the sportsmaster could tell by their body language enough was enough, enough, he'd separate them, he'd take the gloves off, shake hands, and that was that. <laughs> but what it did is it taught you to stand up for yourself. Mm. And the problem with, with zero tolerance for bullies is that the world isn't like that. That's, that's, I, I fully, like, I very much appreciate that line of thought that the world, I would love to live in the ideal world, but we live in the real world that has real people that will do really bad things to you, potentially. Not everyone, but there's that, you know, people, people yeah. are out for themselves. Some people, not everyone, some people are quite lovely, but there the are world, some bullies. The there world are... doesn't suffer fools and weaklings. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. They will eat them up. I think, I think people have a desire to go, I want to live in the ideal world, mm. and therefore I'm going to pretend like we are in the ideal world, and then they'll coddle and try and change society to be that, but unfortunately they're changing a very small aspect of it and then sort of just putting the blinders on to the, the biggest aspect. Like here at, here at the gym, we've got some five-year-olds and they, they, they roll hard. They, they go at it, right? They came in when they first started, maybe six months, no, maybe six months to a year ago. They were quite shy and a little bit timid, but now they, they get some, you know? They really are able to fight back, push, and just, you know, they go hard. Yeah, my word. And I know, and I know that they'll, if, you know, if and when <laughs> someone threatens them in some way, hopefully they have the confidence to stop it. But if, I ha- if it has to get physical, they will fight. Mm. They'll stand up for themselves. Mm. And it's not just a physical confrontation. How many times have people at work or at family events had people, you know, talk down to them or slight them or that sort of stuff, you know? Well, bully confrontations in the world outside of school are 95% of the time psychological bullying. Yes. There's very, very rarely does... You get physical. Physical confrontation yeah. happen, especially in the workplace. So when kids are taught, if, if someone bullies you, tell your teacher. What you're doing in is, real life. What you're doing is you're actually uh, teaching them how to not survive in the real world. Because in the real world, if someone in the workplace bullies you, and they will if they feel threatened by you, you've gone to school, worked hard, mm. got your degree, you come in on a graduate program, and the... You've now usurped someone's position. That's right. So psychological, emotional bullying happens every day Mm. in the world. Yes. Constantly. You have to be able to recognise it, defend yourself, And you have to project the confidence that it's not going to work with you. You're not going to take it. I like that. And and a good martial arts Good martial arts gives you that confidence. Yeah. It teaches you that, because at the end of the day, what is the what is the, the, the most, the basis breakdown of any uh, bullying is a physical confrontation. That's, that's, that's what it can lead to. That's right. And if you know you can deal with the end and conflict. And if you can deal with that, that projects straight back up. This, this happens to me. The kids will say to me, you're so chill, sir. You're so chill. And I'm like, because I know I'm fine. It's, a, it's that core knowledge of, like, I can handle the situation because it's not going to get physical. And if it was, what well, can possibly happen? Yeah, then the, that's true. And the other thing that people need to recognise is 
outside in the world where they don't suffer bully, um, don't suffer weaklings, and they don't suffer fools. You have no control over what happens beyond yourself. Yes. The only thing you can control is you. Mm. The only thing you can control is how you react to things. Yes. And one of the most beautiful sentences and most powerful sentences that I've ever heard is beware of the emotional reaction to the inevitable fluctuation in the phenomenal world. So the phenomenal world is the world we live in. It's the world of summer and winter, hot and cold, day and night. It's the duality. That's the phenomenal world. So be aware of your emotional reaction to changes that are going to happen. Change is inevitable. Yes. So fluctuations are inevitable. The inevitable fluctuations will occur. Yes. The only thing you need to do is beware of how you react to them emotionally mm. when they occur to you. Yes. So if people can get that in their head, the first thing they learn is that I can't control what's going on outside, but what I can control is my reaction yes. to it. Yeah, yeah. The next thing that I think people can learn, and I sometimes get a little bit of flack from this, but when we talk through it, usually we get agreement that emotions aren't real. Our true natural state, the true state of the perfect organism, human being, if you like, is naturally balanced equilibrated, centred love. Everything else is an emotional charge that takes you away from that. Mm. So when you overreact to something, and that overreaction can be love. I mean, what they call love, you know. You know, I, I love my boyfriend so much that when he left me, I couldn't live anymore, so I committed suicide. No, you didn't have to commit suicide. You were going to live. What's happened is you have exaggerated emotionally this experience and turned it into something much greater than what it really is. You're saying like the event is neutral, but how you respond to it is not The event is always neutral. Yeah. The event is always... There is no such thing as a malevolent or benevolent event. See, it's it's easy to conceptualise that, but when it's happening, how do you detach... And recognize that because like I can I can see that from like the yeah the, the intellectual side of things also seeing it from when it's not happening but let's say something happens to my life right that causes that bang emotional response how do you develop the skill set to step back and recognize that and go down that path of going well yeah <laughs> it's my sure. emotions that's the problem here in this sense yeah and the flip side of exaggerating something emotionally is you can exaggerate it you can minimize it as well yes you can yeah, underplaying or overplaying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but either way, you're drawing yourself away from your centered state of love. So when things happen to you, basically, at the end of the day, the first thing you have to know is emotional reactions will happen, mm-hmm. but you have an ability to determine the next step you take. You ever heard of Miles Davis, the famous trumpet player? Yes, amazing, amazing trumpet player. And I have a very interesting one-on-one experience with him back in 85. But anyway, amazing man. And he once said that what determines a wrong note is the note you choose to play after it. Hmm. And that is profound because 
things happen to everybody. And until we train ourselves to get to the point where we neutralise our emotional reaction, doesn't mean you neutralise your sense of sympathy or, or empathy or love. In fact, it heightens that and it allows you then to, uh, for example, learn to forgive people. But until you get to that point, emotional reactions will happen. What determines everything is what you do with that next. Do you break into violence and scream and yell and carry on? So, so the event happens, how do you handle the next step is the, is the key point yes. here. Yeah. So the first thing is to arm yourself with a little bit of knowledge and know that events are neutral, that when things happen they're, malevol- they're not malevolent or benevolent, they're just neutral. The next thing is when you have an emotional charge to it, recognise that you're having an emotional charge which is pulling you away from your ability to recognise this, the reality of what's going on. Mm. And then you say to yourself, all right, let me just take a breath here. So things like take a breath, count to ten, are actually very powerful. And the reason taking a breath is... Yeah. Yeah. The reason taking a breath is so powerful is because it's the breath that ties your physical emotional and mental body to the soul and the soul's nature is centered balanced love so by taking a breath and letting it go in that one breath and again like we were talking about before everything comes back to the single breath Mm. taking that breath will give you time to pause and allow you space yes to recognize that what's happening is an unreal emotional reaction that is exaggerating or minimizing the reality of the event that is happening. My psychologist gave me different words with the same advice of I would something would happen and I would bang, quick reaction. She's just take a break, mm. take a breath, yep. and then if you still don't know, say oh, I'm not sure right now. Let me decide. You know, let me think about it. Yep. And just taking that physical and emotional break and then taking that action. And I'll tell you what, like. It sounds woo woo. It sounds like it wouldn't work, but it just does. Very like, it, like, powerful, like, yeah. like, like, yeah, like one to ten second break, and that's enough to, before you act, before you take that step, is enough to just detach yourself a little bit, a little bit. That's so true. So we've been going for over an hour, so I want to um, bring it to a close. Um, but there is one more question I want to ask, and it's more of just a martial arts based question. Techniques or principles. If you had to teach down one path, would you prefer to go down the path of a principle or like that overall conceptual understanding of the martial art that you're trying to teach? Or would you prefer to teach specific principles to your students? What's your take on either side? Um, well, it's like the old, the old saying, you give a man a fish, you feed him once, you teach him how to fish, you feed him for life. Well, that's technique versus principle. Yes. Um, if if you lead, if you teach a technique and the technique has eight steps in it, mm-hmm. if along the way they understand the principle behind those eight steps, then they can adapt. And fighting is adaptation. We go into a fight, and I'm talking about a martial arts contest, let's say, with a game plan and a strategy. And the other guy has one objective, and that is to spoil your game plan and strategy. So if you can't adapt to the situation at hand, 
you're in big trouble. Yes. Principles allow you to adapt because their game plan is to take you off your technique. Mm. Your ad- adaptation is allow, does al- it allows you to return to principle and analyse what's going on and act accordingly. So principles will always trump technique. Yeah. But you need both. Yes. <laughs> you need the technique so you know you understand the steps involved in what you're trying to do. But if those techniques are taught in a way that doesn't build principles, well then uh, you're being shortchanged. I think. Mm. So that's why repetition is so important. Because if you, the old saying, practice makes perfect isn't true. It's mm. perfect practice makes perfect. Yes. Because if you practice something wrongly over and over, you'll create the wrong habit. Mm. If you practice something based on solid principles, then you can adapt to anything. And what I've found from my own training is one of the most enjoyable parts of my life is... I've been able to train pretty well every martial art that I can think of off the top of my head. Lots that I haven't probably, but I've been to India and done the Indian wrestling. I've trained with Kali guys, judo guys, jiu-jitsu guys, karate guys, um, karate guys from different styles, boxers, mm. kickboxers. And what happens is if you have solid principles, it will drift over into their technique. Because a punch and a kick based on solid principles will have universal application across different ways. The body is the body, no matter the There's only so many ways you can punch and kick. There's only so many right ways you can choke someone. So if you have the principle right, you can apply that to technique. So I suppose just the final follow-up question from a teacher's perspective, how do you go about instilling principles into the student? Okay, so like, I agree, technique is vital, obviously, but as you were saying, principles are where it's at, you know, that's the that's the thing you want to get across. When someone comes to a class, right, so tonight we, um, in the fundamentals class, we learned a hip hip bump up, and then a, um, when they counter that, you go for a guillotine. Now that's, you know, the technique, right? And I've, I've spoken to, to our coach, and he will say, well, people come to a class expecting, you know, the expectation of the lay person is, I want to learn the technique, mm. right? Because that's, you know, it looks, look mm. what I can do, I can do this mm. thing. So given that environment, how do you get the principle across to the student? Well, I think you have to instill in them an awareness of the principle. So, for example, if you're talking about a certain sweep, you have to boil it down to certain principles. One, you have to destroy their base. So if you take away their ability to post and take away their balance, then you can pretty well sweep anyone from anywhere. Mm. So you, you have to go, okay, well, when we're doing this particular sweep here, it's really important to do this technique this way. And the reason is from a... From a physics viewpoint, yeah. placing your hips there or placing them there are completely different. Mm. So the principle that you're looking for here is, is their post dead? 
Yeah. Have you taken away? Excuse me. Have you taken away their post? Yes. Is their balance compromised? Yes. Have you, have you, taken away their balance? So, so you're saying to like use the key words, like the key principles in your explanation of. Yes. See, I, I notice Coach John doing that all the time. It's like you know the hip bumps is taking them off that angle. You're taking yeah. away the post. You ta- you know those sort of things. So it's. You know, when I'm, I'm, I'm saying this for my own personal benefit, I teach yep. the kids. Sure. So I want to, like, be, work out a way to best instill that to them. And it sort of seems like what you're saying is, as you're going through the technique, explain why, principally, the technique is working. Yeah, well, I always use, I like to use angles and leverage, the concept of angles and leverage. So you show someone something, and then you get them to walk around and do the hold the technique on, but change angles yes. and see the difference in the oh, okay. in the result. And mm. you go, that's an example of what we call a principle. Mm. The, print, the technique is the same, but the principle is that you're moving to increase your leverage. You're applying it from a different angle, different yes. angle, different angle. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so I say to them that the key principle is always to find the best angle to optimize your leverage. And you can, if you do that, you can be in a situation and ask yourself, why isn't it working? Let me analyse what happens if I change angles here. Yes. And that allows them then to apply principles to their own techniques. Mm. And it's an ongoing thing. You know, it's an ongoing challenge uh, in any martial arts. How do you instill people to get the right principle? Usually what I do in the st- is... You have to break down their desire to hit hard or overwhelm or get the tap or anything. And you break it down into bite-sized steps, bite-sized steps in rhythmical movement. Because, if, for example, if you're teaching someone a left, right, left hook, right, uppercut, a left, right, left hook, back with a right, up with an uppercut, well, if you try to teach them to do that from a technique viewpoint, they get lost because their mental objective becomes how hard can I hit this person? Oh, but if you're teaching them that flow, like bop, bop, move, 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 yeah. switch, so yeah. you go, all right, so let's look at principles here. Where's your weight? So let's get the weight right, the weight and the rhythm right. Mm. So slow right down, forget about power because power isn't a somatic. Yeah. Power isn't a quality of the body other than when other qualities of the body are combined. Hmm. So you try and hit hard, it's never going to happen. But you hit with balance, with rhythm, with accuracy, with timing, yeah. with speed, the power will automatically be there. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like if I just go, ah, it's not going yeah. to work. But if you go, okay, let's just start off, get the rhythm. Bup, bup. We even put a metronome on in the hmm. dojo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bup, 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 bup. Don't try and hit. Remember, it's your body hitting. You can take a bullet from a 44 Magnum and you can throw it at someone as hard as you can and provided you don't hit them in their eyes, they're fine. Yeah. But you put the same bullet in a gun and shoot it because the gun, of the bore the of the rifle and the amount of gunpowder. Yeah. So the, that is what does the damage. Yes, yes, yes. So it's the same. You, you, someone with a, a big strong fist can hit you and don't even feel it because the technique's wrong. But you get someone who's a little lightweight who goes smack because the technique is so good, the impact will be so well leveraged mm. that it'll have optimal results. So you slow them down, you get rhythm, you work on rhythm. Rhythm allows people to maintain balance. With the rhythm then comes the timing, 
and then you can slowly speed it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I think I think we'll call it there. No I worries. really appreciate your time. We've uh, we've gone well over schedule, but I feel like I could um talk and listen to you for hours. You've got such a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate you taking the time. My and pleasure, Zach, and good luck with the the blog. And I look forward to uh, I'll, seeing I'll, more of it. I'll I'll let you know when this one's out. Um, it's been good having you in the gym. I know that um all the guys have really appreciated as well having you on the mat and rolling with us. And yeah, I, I was I was taking a private, but I saw you um teaching the. MMA um, guys, some um, cushion kicking. Oh, yeah, I think it was yeah. like a like a like Leg a snap drill. kick to the yeah. thigh, maybe. Um, asked a couple of them afterwards how they found it, and they're like, "Yeah, really good, really good." So it's been good. It'd be good That's to have good. you back down again when you come. Yep, I'll be back. No drama. Anyway, thank you thanks, so much. Zach. Appreciate that. Love it. Yeah, good on you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could put a positive review up on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you're listening to it. And if you want to hear more interviews like this, the best way you could support the podcast is via Patreon. Patreon is a way for people to provide support for content creators who are putting their stuff out there for free. So for me, doing these podcasts and blogs and videos and all the stuff that I'm doing takes a lot of time. It takes time to do the recording, to do the uploading, and all of that sort of stuff comes at a cost. It basically means that I have to sacrifice that time from working and put it into what I'm doing here. And I'm glad to do it. But I'd love to be able to do it more, more than just on this casual basis. And the way that you can help me to do that is via contributions through Patreon. What you can do is contribute $1 per month to my Patreon. And on your end, $1 will basically go unnoticed. But on my end, $1 per month, if a bunch of you get together and support, will make a massive difference. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips. And on this note, just a massive shout out to all the people that have already started contributing. I'm really, really appreciative. It blows my mind every time I get that notification that someone new has started supporting me. So once again, thank you.